0: In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition, it's intuition, which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable explanations for things. Welcome to Two Shrinks Pod. My name's Amy Donaldson. And today I'm going to be interviewing a researcher, Laura Finlayson-Short, who is a PhD candidate at Melbourne University. So we've been doing a series of interviews with people for Psychology Week, and I thought that I'd chuck a couple of researchers into the mix. Hunter's already interviewed some clinicians, so hopefully you enjoyed that. So welcome, Laura.
1: Hi, Amy. Thanks very much for having me. Happy to uh, fill out your researcher contingent.
0: Excellent. Because I think a lot of people assume that anyone who goes into psychology is a clinician.
1: That is absolutely true. I constantly get asked, you know, how much clinical work I've done, if I'm a clinician, sometimes because I'm doing neuropsychiatry. That's my kind of fancy, the fancy title for my discipline, although I'm often told that that is too fancy a title and really I'm just a psychologist. But, you know, that's some people's opinion. Yeah. Uh, Basically, yeah. So I also get asked if I am a trained psychiatrist, if I'm a doctor, but the reality is that no, I'm just doing research, although I will be able to call myself a doctor In about a year's time. So you can pretend. I can, yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm the fake child. Watch that world.
0: (laughs) So what made you go into research?
1: That is a great question. I think for me, I have just always been really interested in the way things work, why things are the way they are, the human condition. And I always, you know, if I have free time, I'll end up getting stuck on in like a wikipedia hole just reading about like famous tiaras of the past or <laughs> you know and something highly it's just relevant, yeah incredibly relevant things yeah just a- any random topic i will just get really stuck in researching it for a while just for fun so i thought why not do that as a job
0: Makes sense. Yeah. And psychology, was that just nosy about people?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think even when I was very young, I was interested in the way, uh, you know, the way that social groups interact and why people do the things that they do. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was just really interested in, you know, just that idea that someone else's mind works differently from mine and I was just fascinated as to, you know, what was going on in there. Yeah. So I thought, you know, I guess I came at that kind of, research from lots of different angles when I was in school like I loved English literature and I think that's just you know a different way of looking at the human condition Absolutely. just through the written word in undergrad uni I did philosophy which is mm-hmm. very similar I mm-hmm. did political science which is more kind of on, on the social level and I also did some like physiology so getting like right down to right. a systems level so, so yeah you kind of
0: circled it in all different ways exactly mm-hmm.
1: yeah. yeah and so I thought well, honestly, when I was an undergrad, I thought, what is going to actually get me a job mm-hmm. once I finish? And I was like, well, philosophy and political science, probably not going to do that for me, at least in a research capacity. Yeah. So I thought, you know, psychology research or and kind of with a neuroscience tinge to it is probably a better way to go. Hmm. Makes um, sense. Yeah, it's definitely something that I'm really interested in. Mm.
0: So do you have a kind of elevator pitch for your research, like a quick...
1: What are you looking at? Sure, yeah. So I'm looking at uh, the intersection of self-related processing and other related processing. So that's basically when you think about yourself or you think about other people. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at when those two things collide and the brain activity that's associated with it. Okay. Um, in particular, we're looking at social anxiety disorder and how those processes go wrong or right. you know, don't work quite as well as we'd want them to.
0: Okay. So for people who don't know much about social anxiety mm-hmm. disorder, what is that look
1: like yeah so basically it's characterized by an excessive focus on yourself and Mm -hmm. how you appear to other people so you'll get people who find it well i guess the classic symptom that people who aren't who don't have a disorder experience in their day-to-day life is the idea of going up and giving a, a talk in public to a large mm-hmm. group of people that makes people super, super anxious. Someone who's socially anxious gets that level of anxiety when they're just, say, um, at the supermarket checkout, having a chat to the, the person at the yeah. checkout, just literally about like, you know, here's the amount of money that I meant to give you. Like that mm. will trigger the same kind of anxiety because they're having all those thoughts about what is this person thinking of me and I'm, I'm making a fool of myself. Um, they feel that they've embarrassed themselves. So it has got that real judgment component. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Although it is culturally dependent mm. um, the, the way that it is expressed because in kind of western cultures you get this this feeling of I I'm embarrassed I've embarrassed myself whereas in a cult in a more asian collectivist cultures like Japan for example mm. it manifests in being worried that you have offended someone else. Interesting. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So yeah. it's by this it's triggered by the same kind of social situations but the focus is, is on, the reverse.
1: Exactly right, yeah.
0: Interesting. Yeah. And I can imagine that would lead to different coping behaviours and different ways of
1: thinking about the world. Correct, yeah. So it's almost mm. a different disorder when, mm. when you're talking about a collectivist country, yeah. yeah, and the rates of it are different as well.
0: Are they higher, lower?
1: I'm fairly sure that they're higher in Western societies. Mm. Yeah. Okay,
0: interesting. Yeah. And it makes sense why you'd then be looking at the kind of self-other aspect of it if the entire disorder kind of is focused on that what do other people think of me how do I interact with them in the world exactly
1: yeah yeah and it's I think the really interesting thing is that no one has really looked at this on a neurobiological level so we don't know what the brain does when you are both thinking about yourself and thinking about other people at the same time okay which does actually happen in a lot of social situations like the you know at the checkout for example like Mm. it's just an automatic process where you're just like you know what am I going to do what are they going to do what What's expected in that Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So if you think about it, there's a lot of uh, unconscious, very quick, automatic processing going on there. And yeah, it's almost. It was very surprising to me when I started this project that uh, no one had really deliberately looked at this before, mm. actually crafted an experiment to to look at this specific thing. So that's what we did.
0: Yeah, because you'd assume that that would be something that had been looked at. Has it been looked yeah. at in other disorders?
1: No, not that I found, and mm. uh, not to my knowledge, at least at the moment. I'm writing up a paper just on healthy individuals Mm -hmm. um so it actually hasn't been done in healthy people okay which is usually the first step and then you go to disorders not always but but generally that's how it works Mm. there have been some papers that have been done on for example like how are you more attractive or less attractive than this other person yeah so that that's been done but they haven't looked at it in the right way to really get a clear idea of what is going on in the brain when you're doing that processing Yeah. Yeah. So it's just there were some kind of flaws in the experimental design because they were more interested in other factors. Okay. So
0: it's a pretty new area to be branching out into.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah.
0: Did you know what you were looking for or what you were expecting to find?
1: Yeah. So there's kind of a large scale brain network that is associated with self-related activity. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of switches on when you think about yourself. So we were expecting to find increased activity in that network. It's called the default mode network. Um I won't go into the more the complexities yeah. of that because there's all kind of yeah, there's a lot of explanation behind it. Is um, there only one of those? One default
0: mode network, or is yes. there multiple?
1: No, there's multiple. one default mode network. It is uh it's called that because it is active when people are at rest in okay. in an MRI scanner. So essentially if you're just mind wandering thinking about whatever you might think about when someone says lie down and think like do whatever for 10 minutes yeah that's the network that switches on okay and it switches off during most goal-directed tasks
0: okay yeah so it's kind of the thing that's running in the background and then you activate
1: a different part and it switches over to that that's right yeah yeah so you'd have like you know visual attention or you know trying to switch your attention stuff like that you have other kind of networks come on Mm -hmm. so we were expecting activity in that network because of the thinking about yourself you also get a lot of overlap when you're thinking about other people there are a lot of the same regions in the default mode network are also switched on during other referential processing because Hmm. I mean a lot of people would argue that thinking about the self and thinking about other people are inherently intertwined yeah it's it's very difficult to do one without the other
0: yeah we're constantly comparing ourselves to other people
1: that's right yeah and and we also have this tendency to build our self-concept around information that we've we've gathered from other people Mm. so if someone you know you're you're a little kid at school and someone says oh you're really smart or you're really good at art that's a piece of information that you take and you go okay this is who I am as a Mm. person this is a really important part of me and myself which is why so you can see how that can go wrong in development
0: yeah definitely I'm immediately thinking of all those kind of kids that I work with who get those mixed messages about who they are or what their place is in the world and yeah, how that would play out. And that it often comes back to, well oh, well, but mum said or dad said Yes, yeah. exactly. Everyone's exactly. told me I'm not important or I'm not yeah. yeah.
1: Or I'm not good enough or something mm. like that. Yeah. So it can obviously be some really positive messaging or some really negative messaging. And it's like that's kind of the key time when you're building your self-concept. But we're even as we're getting older and, mm. and even in adulthood, you do still tend to, you know, incorporate little bits of more information. Revise things. Exactly, yeah. 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 So it's just this constant back and forth between thinking about yourself, thinking about other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So un- understandably, the same networks are involved. Yeah. There's also uh, – we were also expecting some involvement – probably of some of the more typical uh, extra areas that are related to other referential processing. Mm -hmm. So there are some memory and learning areas. Did Uh, you get
0: to look at my favourite area of the brain? Is
1: it the hippocampus, Mm -hmm. by any chance? Yes, (laughs) yes, we did. Yeah. (laughs) Well, honestly, it's very pretty. It's pretty. Yeah, It's I pretty. Think so.
0: It's got a great name. Yeah. It's got a great
1: slogan that goes along with it. It's perfect. It's much more interesting than, you know, just a, a, a normal gyrus, let's, let's put it that way. Mm. It's unusual looking in yeah. the grand scheme of the brain.
0: If anyone listening has not seen a
1: picture of it, it's, it's worth having a
0: look. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you're expecting that be some of those
1: elements around
0: memory, and did you say emotion?
1: yeah kind of learning areas so things like the amygdala so Mm -hmm. right next to the hippocampus um, and the hippocampus is also involved in learning Mm -hmm. yeah so we we were involving expecting a little bit of that okay and yes so I can tell you about what we found if you like yes
0: (laughs) well actually before you do how do you look at that
1: like how do you that is probably an important place to, to start yeah before we dive into the results so basically we get a bunch of participants Mm -hmm. um so in this case we've recruited healthy controls so healthy people and also people with social anxiety disorder and some people with depression okay um although social anxiety is the focus so the depression is so they might might have both uh yes we actually have three patient groups so mm -hmm. people with social anxiety disorder people with depression and people with both diagnoses okay and they
0: have was it sort of like they had to just have those disorders nothing else going on or
1: well our exclusion criteria were so we didn't want anyone to have a psychotic mm-hmm. disorder so none of that but most other disorders we kind of allowed in yeah we didn't want any other mood disorders so bipolar for yep. example, would have been out mm-hmm. and other anxiety disorders as well. So any like generalized anxiety, panic disorder, mm-hmm. but yeah, yeah. Most other things. So we didn't even screen for eating and feeding disorders, for example, or personality disorders. Okay. Although I would say that that's a general limitation in most yeah. research because it takes double the time to screen for personality disorders. Yeah. It's not uh, a no, simple process. It's uh, it's very long and complicated mm. and there are a lot of questions to ask. So most people don't do it. Okay. And it's someone who has previously done research on borderline personality disorder I, it's a bit of a kind of pet um <laughs> love for me so yeah yeah it's it's frustrating that people don't have the resources to be able mm, to, to be able to do, do that. that in yeah. every study yeah but ours was the same
0: yeah okay so you had the three groups yes and
1: then what yes right yeah so we would get a participant into to a hospital mm-hmm. uh, where we have an mri scanner that's available for us to use we train people in on how to do a the task that we created to look at this kind of interplay of self and other processing So, what was the task uh now we we called it the dyad task or um self other processing task or the faces task for participants because that makes it a bit simpler
0: did it have a acronym that was not satisfying
1: no no No. it was dyad or faces i know we really (laughs) did yeah so basically we would uh present participants with a lot of different faces Mm -hmm. of just random people that they would have never seen before and we asked them to answer the question how much do you relate to this person okay and we trained them on how to do that to make sure we were getting the kind of processing that we wanted so we would say I want you to think about your own qualities and characteristics who you are as a person and then I want you to think about what the person on the screen might be like so what their qualities and characteristics are Hmm. and if you were to meet them at any kind of social situation, like on a bus or at a party or something like that, would you be able to have a good conversation with them? Would they be similar to you? Like, okay. do, would you relate to their experience? And so they're provided with no other information, just just that, just face? The, just a photo of their face. Yeah, that's okay. right. Some of the faces uh, had emotional expressions on them. Mm-hmm. Um, I probably won't get into that in too much detail. It's yep. just an extra nuance of the of the study. And we also asked them as a control condition, because you have to have a control condition for MRI experiments, we asked them to judge how far apart a person's eyes were. Oh, yes. okay. On a scale of one to three, huh. which is, you, as you can imagine, it's actually quite difficult to do because you don't tend to make that kind of a judgment.
0: No. In everyday I, life. And I'm immediately thinking that you would then compare it to other faces. That's right. To know that, okay, yeah. Yep. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So the the idea with the control condition was that we wanted something that had all the same task effects. So Mm -hmm. looking at a face, making a judgment, pressing a button, all of that kind of stuff. So we could isolate the self other referential activity. So if you kind of like minus out all the task activity, then that's what you're left with. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right.
0: So they did that. And then how many faces were they looking at? Uh, I think
1: the total was about 72. Wow, okay. It's um, so about twelve minutes long, right? In total, It's mm, yeah.
0: pretty. It's pretty quick with each.
1: Yeah, well, so yeah. so we have them in an MRI scanner, and you would be surprised at how long five seconds in an MRI actually is. Yes, I've
0: had one. And... <laughs> there we go. Yep. Yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. Time stops. Exactly. Yeah. 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 It's it's a bit of an unpleasant environment, and we do. Our whole protocol lasts an hour, so we, we get okay. them to, to sit in there for a, a Quite fair a while. while. Uh, yeah, but we do find that five seconds is is more than long enough for people to make a judgment and for us to get kind of a reliable signal.
0: Yeah. And is there a screen that they're looking at? I'm just trying to remember what it was like.
1: Yeah, well, um, we're, we're really lucky because um, the hospital we scan at has uh, a system that allows us to have the patients wear some goggles and oh. through the goggles an image of our computer screen is transmitted so they see the our screen on the goggles awesome um yeah it's really good because it means we don't have to worry so much about people who wear glasses mm. because otherwise if you are short-sighted like me then yeah. you can't see a far away screen through a mirror which yeah. is the usual setup I okay. end up having to squint and do you take these goggles home to watch
0: Netflix? <laughs> like
1: that, or is it... They are a little bit like virtual reality goggles, mm. but no, they are because they are made for the MRI, uh, which can't have any iron-based metal in it. Okay, yeah. It's they're so expensive. The whole yep. system is incredibly expensive. So you haven't thought to risk mm, them? No, no. <laughs> definitely not. Also, yeah, there's like receiver boxes on the wall and stuff. You definitely couldn't. There'd like, be a lot of complex right. process. That's right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so they lie in the MRI for decades. Yes. <laughs> while you show them images. Yeah. And they select.
1: Yeah. yeah. They have a, a, bu- a button box, which mm-hmm. is exactly what it sounds like. It is a box with buttons on it. And using that, they can respond with, you know, I, I don't relate to this person at all. It's button one. I relate to them somewhat, button two, or mm-hmm. I relate to them very much, button three.
0: Okay. Yeah. And then meanwhile, you're scanning them to see about different brain activity. That's absolutely right. Yeah. Okay, yeah. interesting. And did you find what you thought you would find?
1: Yeah. So at the moment, we have only analysed the data for healthy controls. Mm-hmm. We haven't quite finished our patient groups yet. Should be doing that in the next couple of months. Nice. Yeah. So with our healthy controls, we have found uh, that yeah, pretty much exactly what we want. We're hoping to find it's been incredibly successful, much more successful than I had hoped to yeah. be honest. Yeah. Creating a new task you. Uh, you do have that feeling of, is this going to just not work? Am I, you know, throwing away three years of my PhD? Am am I going to have to start from scratch? Uh, But no, it's been been amazing. We found all of that, you know, wide-scale activation of the default mode network that I mentioned Mm -hmm. earlier. We also found activation of the hippocampus, your favourite area, and the amygdala. So, yeah, areas implicated in of learning and memory, but also areas related to mirror neurons. Hmm. Um, I don't know if you have.
0: I I do, uh, but do you yes. want to do a quick yeah quick explanation?
1: Um, so basically, the uh, it's a it's a system that switches on when you are imagining or looking at yourself or someone else doing an, an action. Mm-hmm. So any any kind of like motor activity, yeah. So it's kind of like a low level automatic processing of the actions of other people or of yourself. Mm. Let's put it that way. And then, so it's actually, I think one of the more interesting findings is that we're getting these low-level automatic processing areas switching on, and we're also getting the higher-level, more conscious processing areas where you're going, okay. what do I think about this person? But you're also getting that automatic gut, like yeah. do I like this person or not yeah. kind of feeling. That instant like, emotional, emotional reaction. That's yeah. right, yeah. Yeah, so I think that was one of the more interesting Yeah, findings. definitely. I guess really the take-home from our findings is that we now know – what happens in the brain when you're kind of concurrently thinking about yourself and other people, which mm. is totally new. And hopefully, when we get to compare the findings that we have now in healthy people to people with social anxiety disorder and depression as well. Yeah a slightly lesser extent, we'll be able to map what's not working mm. uh, in that system for people who are socially anxious and, you know, who's, who are just really self-focused and worried mm. about how they appear to other people. And that will give us a better brain model of the disorder and yeah. how we might be able to fix that kind of in the long run. Okay. Yeah.
0: So what areas might need
1: to be targeted in the future? That's absolutely right. Yeah. yeah. So are you expecting
0: that they'll have more activation in particular areas or less or... Is that a tricky stab in the dark?
1: <laughs> yeah, I think we're expecting that there will probably be more activity mm. because there's a, this excessive focus on on this this process. Yeah, you would think you know, a healthy person who's not thinking of just not thinking about it that mm. much is not going to have as much activity. So we're going to expecting kind of overactivity in that that network. Yeah, which will kind of line up with previous findings, and you know, line up with findings about. Uh, for example, meditation, which mm-hmm. switches off the default mode network. Okay. Um, in day to day life has been quite found to be like quite helpful for a lot of disorders, particularly depression and anxiety. So it switches off. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it just stops you
0: thinking about yourself so much, basically. Okay. Is that because it shifts your attention to something? Outside. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Yeah. Okay. So then mm-hmm. you're not stuck in that loop. That's yeah, that's yeah. it interesting I never thought about the brain side of things about why that would work
1: (laughs) yeah I mean that's that's why I think it's partly why I chose to go into this area because I wanted that kind of deeper understanding of like what's actually going on Mm. behind you know these things that we we know work why is it working and how can we kind of harness that power even more nice
0: so we might leave it There, take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to have a chat about all things PhD. Sounds good. See you soon. Suggest reasonable explanations for things. So, in the middle of this podcast, we always do a please like us kind of plea. And when I'm doing this with Hunter, he always forces me to do this in a conventional way, and he's not here. So, (laughs) I can say what I like. (laughs) So I'm sitting here with lovely Laura. You think our podcast is amazing, right?
1: I do think your podcast is amazing.
0: Like, top 10 in the
1: world. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Work yep. it up there. On yeah. Charts.
0: This week it's just gone through the roof. That's absolutely right. It's an amazing yeah. guest. <laughs> and yeah. So if you agree with us, please go on to iTunes and give us a five star rating. Uh, you can also chat to us. So you can contact us by email twoshrinkspod at gmail.com. You can visit our website twoshrinkspod.com, or you can talk to us on Twitter. We're twoshrinkspod, unsurprisingly. (laughs) Thank you all for listening, and we're going to get back to it. But as we try to widen and make more consistent our description of what we see, as it gets wider and wider and we see... So apart from when you're popping people in the metal tube, (laughs) I should (laughs) stop calling it that, the MRI, what does day-to-day life look like when you're doing a PhD?
1: Yeah, well, I think there are kind of three typical days, depending on which year you're in of Mm -hmm. the PhD. Uh, So in first year, you're all bright eyed and bushy tailed, excited about what you're about to get into. And really the first year for most people, at least in my area, is about reading a lot. Mm -hmm. So you're downloading some papers, searching for some papers, reading the papers, making notes on the papers. Uh, You're just doing a lot of that. There's also often, yes, just a lot of sitting around at a desk thinking about stuff. Mm -hmm. You might be conceptualising the project that you're about to do. You might be doing an ethics application, but basically lots of reading and writing. Mm -hmm. And that culminates in a confirmation process, which basically is the hurdle that everyone has to jump to keep being a PhD student.
0: Which doesn't feel as kind of affirming as the name makes it sound out
1: to be no no, no. It, it really brews a lot more doubt than it sounds um, yeah everyone yeah. speaks about it with dread rather than
0: with <laughs> that's right being confirmed yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> although once you've done it you realize it's not actually that big a deal like as long as you're on track and doing work every day then mm. you're going to pass because essentially no you issues. have to describe what you're going to do and
0: yeah listen to any criticism or any concerns or exactly like whatever.
1: Yeah. yeah 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 and your supervisors are there to kind of give you some some help and back you up if particularly if they're the ones who conceptualized of the project in the Mm -hmm. first place. Yeah. So you don't get cop all the flack on your own. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's kind of first year. Second year is putting people in the MRI over and over again. I honestly, I really like that, that period because it's, it's busy, but you don't ever get bored because you're Mm. just running from place to place. And um, for me, I was the one who was recruiting all of the healthy controls. So there was a lot of emailing people, doing mm-hmm. screening phone calls with people, repeating the same script over and over again. Yeah. Uh, yeah, going out to the MRI. Meeting where did them. you find them? Uh, I, I posted an ad on Gumtree and that was where I got huh. almost everyone. Um, Interesting. be surprised. We do offer, you know, quite a, quite a large reimbursement yeah. sum. So that helps. Yeah. Um, about $75. Okay. Yeah. So you get a lot of people from doing that. But also a lot of people just really wanted a picture of their brain. Right. Which is also something we provide. Oh,
0: nice. So they get a sort of take
1: home. Yep.
0: Yeah. That's right. We send them an email with some slides. Yeah. What section of Gumtree do you advertise in?
1: Uh, I think we go, there's other jobs Mm. and there's also like a volunteering section as well. Yeah. Mm. So nothing weird. No, No, we don't do anything. No. Like underhanded. (laughs)
0: okay so most of the
1: year second year spent recruiting people yeah going to the MRI doing yeah. six people a week scanning six people a week That's uh, a lot. yeah it was a very busy time but at least you know you get to have a chat to lots of different people from different walks of life and ask them questions about mm-hmm. themselves and their problems which is why I got into this yep in the first place because it's interesting mm. and then third year there's a lot of data analysis and then there's you get back to writing but instead of writing you know a huge long document you're writing a couple of very neat small contained papers Mm -hmm. and then you go back to writing a thesis which is a giant giant um, yeah
0: yeah document yeah what have you found the most challenging bit of it
1: challenging I think I think the most challenging thing is when you get to the point in the PhD where I'm at you can just get a little bit bogged down in what is the point of what I'm mm. doing because you and also you get a bit bored with the subject matter. Yeah. Because you've been doing the same thing for, you know, two and a half, three years mm-hmm and you just go god i'm bored of this yeah it's you know i started off really interested and really really ambitious and excited and yeah and then you and you can get a bit bogged down in, in getting kind of bored and sick of it but you also have kind of ups and downs with it mm. like at the moment i'm making really good progress on my first paper that's going to come out of this project and that's really exciting because there's actually something tangible that's yeah. happening right now so i'm something actually concrete feeling good that about you're working it. working yeah. that's yeah that's right yeah so i'm yeah feeling very good about that uh, and you know then I'm going to get back into data analysis and that'll be a different phase and that has its own you know yeah parts and bad parts and sometimes that can be quite frustrating because you'll realize that something in the code was wrong and you've just spent you know two weeks doing this thing and it's all wrong and you have to go back and all for nothing it. Yep. yes yeah those, yep. those parts can be crazy making yes very much so yep. yeah
0: yeah so actually I didn't ask about kind of when you're analyzing the data are you looking at the images from the mri or their responses on the push button doodah or both both or, okay
1: yeah so we've got a we've got a lot of really good data so we look at the mri images mm-hmm. um we kind of get an average of all the participants. And then I kind of get to look at that average on kind of a mock-up of a brain. Nice. And But we also look at how do the responses, so the level of relatedness, for example, how is that modulating the brain activity? Okay. Yeah, which was also actually quite another, another quite interesting finding in the healthy controls. There's yeah. like one particular area, the medial prefrontal cortex, mm. which is a hub of self-related activity basically. Yet yeah. yeah, the kind of activity in that region – increases in a stepwise manner as you kind of as you increase as you, in relatedness you okay. get more activity in this region but so if you really relate to someone you get like this really really strong activation if you only relate to them a little it's a little weaker and if you don't relate to them then it's yeah it's even weaker um, hmm. yeah
0: what does that area of the brain do
1: so it's basically it's it's just it's a hub of the default mode network it okay. um tends to uh the idea is that well, my supervisors previously put out a paper that implicates one of the kind of posterior regions of the brain, the posterior cingulate cortex is something that's driving self related activity and then it's moderated by the activity of the medial prefrontal cortex. Okay. So that's the bit that goes okay, let's just, let's calm it down a little now. Yeah. We've had enough. Let's think about this a little. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah. And that's often what frontal regions, prefrontal yeah. regions do is that they, they moderate, modulate activity of other regions yeah. in all different processes. But the medial medial part, particular area, is very related to self and other related processing.
0: Okay. Yeah. Whenever I hear things about the brain, I can never, never not. That's not the right word. <laughs> I, I always... <laughs> Think about Dan Siegel's hand brain thing. Have you seen that?
1: I have not. No. I always
0: use it to explain the brain to kids. If anyone's wanting to know how to think of a brain by looking at your hand, highly recommend looking for it. Yeah, so it's kind of like your wrist is the brainstem. Oh, right. And then the gyri. Are the and then your thumb across the middle is kind of like all of that. Oh, yeah. the Amygdala, hippocampus, all of that. stuff, yeah. Middle bit and mm. then the top bit. Oh, the, the cortical gyri. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. the sulci. Yeah. yeah and then the idea is with some things if you get like overly emotional you flip your lid and <laughs> <laughs> you fling your fingers up and the thinking part of your brain doesn't communicate with that's anything else.
1: Not a terrible explanation of how what happens, yeah. Mm.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I often talk about flipping my lid. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so it's that front the fingers
1: part of the brain. Yeah, that's right. But the, the front part Yep. The, yeah, because really uh, the flipping the lid analogy is, is a little too... Too simplistic. Yeah, well, it would just be the front part. You'd be flipping mm. just the first, first, the first two, two fingers. fingers. Yeah, yeah. because the back two are more related to vision and, mm. and integrating lots of different sensory inputs. So it's what the parietal yeah. cortex
0: stuff. So your first two fingers. That's right. Yeah. 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 Nice.
1: <laughs> or it might even just be the first finger because <laughs> you might say that the middle finger is about uh, like where the motor and sensory cortices are.
0: Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you could split it that way. Yeah, yeah. So just one finger. Yeah, just yeah. the front. Just the one finger. <laughs> That's interesting that you found yeah. that pattern in healthy controls.
1: Yeah, it'll be interesting. That'll be a key region that we're going to be looking at in when we're comparing the socially anxious people to the healthy controls. As to
0: How do you know. make sense of that at this point? Like why there would
1: be more... That is a good question. I have to admit that we're still in the process of writing up the implications and mm. discussion. I think my supervisor is going to have a very nuanced understanding of what, what's going on there. I'm not quite at that level, so yeah. I don't want to kind of make too much of a comment on it just yet. Um, yeah, but it's interesting. It is.
0: Yeah. yeah. The first thing that comes to mind to me is whether there's a more kind of, whether you think more about what you've got in common with someone who you're mm. who you like, or there's some kind of... I don't know, more of a drive to seek that I don't know, it's weird. Yeah. This is... Just dismiss the ones. You know, <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye. Yeah. Yeah. No, I do not yeah. need to waste my valuable prefrontal cortex on you. Exactly. So. Yeah. Interesting.
1: Well, it may also have something to do with the fact that people people tended to relate more to uh, individuals with happy faces than mm. with neutral or angry faces. Okay. So there may also be an emotional component, but yeah, I'm not entirely sure of that just yet. Mm. I mean, it makes
0: sense about the angry faces, doesn't
1: it? It it does. Although, kind of very, very preliminary results show that people with anxiety, social anxiety disorder, and depression have less kind of preferential relatedness to happier faces. Yeah, but yeah, don't quote me on that. No, just interesting. Because yeah, we haven't done obviously haven't done the processing because we don't have the full sample yet. But that that's kind of the trend at the moment. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. I'm curious to see what'll it mm. turn out to me be. Me too. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So where do you reckon you'll go with things once you've finished wrapping it all up?
1: Big Uh, holiday? (laughs) Yeah, I think to start with, definitely if I can swing a holiday, that'd be absolutely great. Yeah. I do have a conference that I've signed up to go to a couple of weeks after I'm meant to submit my thesis, so that'll a motivator exactly yes yep. and it's in Canada so it'll be nice to yeah, lovely yeah, fly over there and and have a look around yeah and then just have a little bit of time off and then the idea will be to I think going into a PhD you need to have your eyes open about the likelihood of having an academic career for the rest of your life mm-hmm. there those uh, that likelihood is pretty low yeah um, partly because not everyone's cut out to be a professor it's mm. it's not for everyone I no. think even if you love research you might not want to get just, that might not be the direction you want to go in once you've gone through. Exactly. Yeah. 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 There are a lot of other research jobs where you get to keep doing research for mm. the whole time, whereas a lot of professors end up taking a lot of meetings and not doing a lot of research. Yeah. Um, so it's just the nature of the job. But anyway, yeah. So I think uh, I'll definitely go uh, looking for postdoctoral research positions, mm-hmm. see what comes to me. Yeah. Uh, I might take a step sideways and, and maybe do something a bit more kind of applied, a bit less neuroscience but. Mm-hmm that remains to be seen okay uh, see where you end up yeah exactly either that or I'll do something completely different and go into kind of science policy advising and the government or can something like that, that. Yeah, yeah I think it'd be a really uh, fun job
0: yeah interesting yeah. Mm. is there anything else that you feel like people should know about research
1: I think I've said everything yeah 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 mm. okay oh well, I guess the one thing that I had written down that we haven't talked about is like what the best part of doing a PhD mm. is yeah, what's she the about fun it, the bit? Worst part was. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say I'd say for me, uh, it's different for everyone. Some people just absolutely love doing data analysis; it's like just their greatest joy in life. Mm. I'm not that person. No, uh, I really love the social aspects. To be mm. honest, um, we have a really good student group in my centre, uh, so it's just a lot of having lunch with people and having a good chat about interesting science-y topics. Nice. But also I really enjoy the like going to conferences, getting to present my research, meeting a lot of interesting people and having great conversations mm. in far-flung interesting places. Nice. Uh, yeah. I mean, when
0: you put it like that, it sounds
1: great fun. Doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely can't complain. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. There are definitely some, some very positive aspects. And getting to meet all the uh, participants as well and, mm. and to have a chat with all these people from completely different walks of life. And, yeah, just, just get to have a good honest. Mm. Sounds good. Yeah. A bit like well, podcasting. Really. Yeah, pretty much.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for talking to me, Laura. We'll be back next time with our final interview for Psychology Week. See you then.
1: As it gets wider and wider and we see a greater range of phenomena... The explanations become what we call laws instead of simple explanations.